States were once thought to be largely free to do as they wished inside their own borders, to be, in other words, sovereign. Since the end of the Second World War, though, the idea of human rights has taken root as a global standard for judging the behavior of states, companies, and other international actors. How did this happen? How successful has the human rights movement been in holding states to account for their behavior? And what are its biggest challenges today? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today on International Human Rights Day, at least that's when we're recording, we explore the past and future of human rights with George Andreopoulos, Professor of Political Science at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and at the Graduate Center, CUNY. He is the founding director of the Center for International Human Rights at John Jay College. He's written extensively on international organizations, international human rights, and international humanitarian law. He's president of the Interdisciplinary Studies section of the International Studies Association and is past president of the Human Rights section of the American Political Science Association. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, George Andreopoulos. Uh, thank, you, Don, uh, thank you, John, for having me. Great to have you. So maybe we could start with, uh, you know, sort of a brief history of human rights. Um, you know, a lot has been written about this. In my introduction, I tied it to the end of World War II, but that narrative is, is as you know, very much contested. Um, where would you say the idea came from and how entrenched would you say it's become in the world today? Yes. Um, yes, I know it is a contested uh, uh, notion, but uh, I do believe that uh, the idea of human rights antedates uh, the end of the Second World War. There are some scholars that have made persuasive arguments that rights-related ideas go all the way back to antiquity. But uh, if we think in terms of the modern period, I would definitely say that uh, a turning point came with the Enlightenment, the American and French revolutions and the message uh, of equality and dignity that they sought to advance. Of course, as we all know, uh, uh, the recipients of these benefits were not everybody in their societies. Progressively, the circle of those that were supposed to be protected widened, uh, but uh, this only happened after a lot of efforts from below, mobilizations uh, um, from those that were left out of the picture, out of the protective shield, so to speak. Uh, concerning the notion of the movement, human rights movement, that has generated quite uh, a contentious debate in the literature, um, I would say that uh, um, the antecedents of what we call today human rights movement should be sought at um, the anti-slavery movement, the uh, movement to abolish um, the slavery 
slave trade in the 19th century. These were important turning points. Uh, and in the 20th century, I would clearly say that uh, the movement against colonialism in the 50s and 60s, and I highlight that because some of the literature tends to see the birth of the human rights movement in the 70s, but uh, the anti-colonial effort with its message for self-determination um, uh, was a very important also moment in the history of the human rights movement. I should also add, and it is important to remember, that a lot of states that became independent in uh, the 60s and 70s African states did incorporate provisions from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in their constitutions before we had the growth of the human rights organizations in the 70s and the 80s in the Western world. Uh, last but not least, I will say also the Second World War experience was a formative experience uh, because uh, uh, of the horrors of the Second World War and uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was shaped by that experience. And one of the first humanitarian law one of the major humanitarian law instruments that were adopted immediately after the Second World War, and I'm talking about the Geneva Conventions, uh, its common Article 3 basically reflects the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So in a nutshell, we have quite a bit of history, uh, and I don't think that everything started when it comes to the human rights movement with the 70s in the 1970s. Right. I mean, you know, Emile Durkheim was a member of something called the League of the Rights of Man in France in the 19th yeah. century. So obviously this has been, the idea has been around for a long time, but it occurred to me as you spoke that, you know, maybe a big part of this is the fact that, you know, an organization came into existence, which was, you know, intended to vindicate this thing, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And that's, of course, the United Nations. So how much would you kind of associate the, the existence of the United Nations with the sort of vindication of a program called Human Rights? Yes. As I say, of course, as you know, the Universal Declaration that we celebrate today was adopted by the General Assembly of the United Nations. And uh, uh, out of the 58 states that were present at that time, members of the General Assembly, 48 voted in favor and eight abstained. Uh, from the eight that abstained, six were uh, uh, countries in the Eastern Bloc and two others were uh, um, uh, not part of the Eastern Bloc, but for their own reasons decided to abstain. And that was Saudi Arabia and South Africa. South Africa was, of course, in the process of uh, a formally institutionalized the apartheid regime. So the role of the United Nations was instrumental because because what it tried to do is to develop a common vocabulary on human rights, because before that initiative took place, you have different traditions, uh, um, uh, not only in the Western world, but also in the non-Western world. There were social justice-related movements before the Second World War that would use what we might call the equivalent of uh, rights-related language. Um, but uh, the, the big change that happens with the United, that occurs with the United Nations is an attempt 
to find a common denominator. And uh, uh, that actually was the springboard for one of the most important achievements, I would say, of human rights since the Second World War. The explosion that we have in legal, in standard setting, in legal instruments. We have many treaties nowadays, which, of course, they have their problems, and I'll be happy to elaborate with them, but they are the frame of reference for serious discussion about human rights observance. So that kind of effort was instrumental because, and we have, and I should add, of course, that most states have ratified most of the human rights treaties, although the observance is a different story, and that gives you a certain tool to hold states accountable. One thing I should add here, John, it is important to remember that uh, in, in the provisions of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, of course, the Western influence was instrumental, especially in the area of civil uh, and political rights. Usually, the, uh, the provisions on social and economic rights are associated with socialist countries. Now, socialist countries did play a role, but in the discourse on how to frame social and economic rights, the input of Latin American countries, as well as on certain Muslim countries, was instrumental. So the idea that somehow the Universal Declaration of human rights should be viewed as simply a Western construct is inaccurate. It would be more accurate to say that clearly the West was the dominant influence in the framing of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but not the only one. So, well, that's very helpful in sort of making sense of the history of of the idea of human rights. Um, But now I want to sort of take us up to the present and, uh, you know, ask you something um, that comes out of the headlines of the newspaper, basically. I saw something in this morning's paper to the effect that, uh, you know, human rights was essentially the standard that was being used to select the invitees to President Joe Biden's uh, Summit for Democracy. Uh, and there was some controversy about, you know, I mean, it went without saying, of course, that China and Russia would not be invited, but, uh, you know, sort of uh, the Philippines, which has not had a particularly stellar record of human rights of late, um, you know, is invited. So I guess the question, in effect, is, um, you know, has human rights become essentially synonymous with democracy? Well, um, that's a um, that's a good question. And uh, by the way, yes, uh, um, it is kind of interesting to see some of the participants uh, in the summit uh, uh, of democracy. Um, uh, the the research, and I'm I'm saying that as uh, a risk of overgeneralization here, with a bit of generalization, uh, um, quite a lot of the research when it comes to uh, what is what are good predictors of um, the quality of rights observance in particular country tend to converge on two criteria. And I'm saying that again at the risk of a bit of a generalization. The one is how democratic the country is. And second, whether the country is at peace or at war. 
these seem to be the key determinants from the studies that have been conducted so far. I mean, I'm talking about large-end studies that have looked at the record of different countries. That, of course, seem to point that democracy is critical and important for human rights. This, however, poses a certain challenge for the human rights project because it has given an opening to human rights activists, especially from the global north, to um, uh, advance solutions to problems of human rights in the global south that are tailored in accordance with some of the key principles and ideas of the global north, meaning, you know, um, democracy, rule of law, robust institutions, and so on and so forth. So uh, this close association of human rights and democracy has also its downturn in the sense that it had given the opportunity to backlashers, and by backlashers I mean these forces in society that are somehow threatened by human rights and that they are powerful enough to resist their implementation, to frame adherence to human rights as a Western construct. And this, of course, has not helped the human rights cause, but on this the responsibility, and I want to stress that in my view, lies not only with the backlashers in this society, but with some of the attitude of certain advocates of human rights of the global north that have a certain arrogance in the way that they approach problems in the global south, and they have some kind, and again I will say that at the risk of a bit of overgeneralization, kind of a Procrustean bed approach to human rights advocacy. That is, as you you know, John, from the myth of uh, Procrustes, there is this bed here, and if you don't fit exactly within the size of the bed, we either cut your head or your legs. That's what Procrustes used to do according to the ancient Greek myth. So if you don't exactly fit with what you are looking, you are not doing a good job on human rights. And this has been one of the problems, I would say, that has bedeviled the human rights movement. Interesting. Uh, definitely want to avoid repeating Procrustes fate. Uh, in any case, I mean, this raises another question that I had wanted to ask you about, you know, the idea and sort of the implementation, if that's the right word, of the idea of human rights. I mean, there's been a lot of, I think a persistent criticism has been that, you know, it's a sort of legalistic, individualistic Mm -hmm. uh, way of thinking about people and human beings, and Mm -hmm. that it in particular has not done much to advance, you know, economic and social rights, I suppose, uh, even though there is, of course, a, uh, an agreement uh, around those issues. But uh, I wonder if you could speak to that question and, you know, the extent to which you think that criticism is justified. Yes. Uh, uh, thank you, John. This is uh, a very important question. And, and having said that, let me just say something personal here before I say what I'm about to say. In addition to being a political scientist, I have also been trained as a lawyer. So as you can imagine, uh, uh, and I do consider that the, the advances in standard setting 
probably one of the greatest achievements uh, in human rights in the last, uh, let's say, uh, 70 years or so, because of the reasons that have explained earlier. Having said that, and although I myself use a lot of legal techniques and methods in my studying of human rights, there is a problem here. And what is the problem? That the legal approach is based on the idea that you can identify a victim, you can identify a perpetrator, and you can identify a hopefully a short causal link that relates the actions of the perpetrator to the effects that this has on the victim. Now, this is very important because as a result of that, this has led to, for example, prosecutions before domestic court, before international tribunals, before hybrid tribunals, of some of the worst perpetrators of human rights violations. However, this kind of approach does not fit very well if you want to go beyond that realm uh, um, and address issues of socioeconomic injustice or what some scholars have said, some of the structural conditions that are responsible for human rights. Because just think about if you want to bring the issue of homelessness, homelessness, if you want to bring the issue of unemployment, if you want to bring the issue of climate change, who exactly is the perpetrator in these situations and how do you hold them accountable? First of all, this is one of the challenges. And um, uh, it was well put many years ago in a piece that Honora O'Neill wrote about how socioeconomic rights have an allocation of duties problem. The question here becomes, how do we address that? Well, the response that some scholars have provided, which I have shared, is that's why you create institutions. You create institutions so that we can pull our resources and render our imperfect duties, all of us, less imperfect because we all join in an effort to solve these problems. However, still, this is a challenge on how to implement uh, rights effectively in some of these areas. And uh, the UN has tried to address somehow this issue by trying to develop, and this is a work on progress, in progress, on draft articles on the responsibility of international organizations. But even that effort will not be enough. Uh, we have to think of other techniques outside the legal realm through social mobilization and pressure to affect outcomes in the ballot box or in other arenas in order to achieve change in these areas. So in a nutshell, although the legal model has offered great things in the cause of human rights, its use in the area in that you raise with your question is clearly limited at best. Right. I mean, you know, the important, importance of institutions, I think, is an interesting, um, you know, comment here. Um, and I mean, I suppose one could say, I mean, I'm sort of interested in the larger question of the extent to which you think the idea of human rights has come to be, you know, a norm around the world that people 
you know, understand and think of as a way of, yeah. of uh, as you said before, holding states in particular, but also other actors to account. Um, and I guess I wonder, you know, to what extent is it really different from, you know, democratic institutions? In other words, uh, the reach of international organizations, even of the International Criminal Court, has been, I would say, distinctly limited. Um, and so I guess the question is, you know, how much sort of value added, if I can use that term, uh, is there, you know, from these international ideas, norms and institutions, which, you know, have a weak, I would say a kind of a weak reach into actual, you know, individual societies, those domestic institutions tend to Mm-hmm. you know, trump whatever might be, you know, going on at the international level. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, the sort of clash of institutions, if that's you know, yes. a way um, to think about it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for your question. First of all, let me say that, uh, yes, it is true that uh, human rights, and I would say primarily this happens, but again, they are always antecedents. I don't believe that history suddenly or something erupts suddenly out of the blue in a particular period of time. I, I don't subscribe to this point of view. But clearly there is no doubt that in the 90s you saw this explosion and clearly the end of the Cold War helped a lot because, among other things, when it comes to the issues of socioeconomic justice that we are talking, kind of destigmatized, if I may use this term, the pursuit of social and economic rights. And by destigmatizing, I mean that it was not anymore associated with communist uh, propaganda. Okay. Now, uh, human rights, I would say, and again at the risk of a little bit of overgeneralization, and considered nowadays uh, widely standards of legitimacy. That is, it is difficult to, I mean, it is difficult to hear nowadays a regime saying that I think human rights is irrelevant or is BS, if I may say that. No state will do that. What will do some authoritarian leaders? What they have done, and they have been very skillful at this, they have tried to use the ambiguity and sometimes the conflicts between rights that inhere within the human rights regime in order to promote or value certain rights as opposed to other rights. So one of the successes of the human rights discourse, unfortunately, and this is one of the unintended consequences, is that it has given an opportunity to opportunistic and clever leaders to co-opt the human rights discourse and challenge it in direction that suits their agenda. For example, Duterte, you mentioned the participation of the Philippines. It is a well-known, and I know that because our center is working very closely with a major NGO in uh, the Philippines uh, 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 to uh, to, uh, to work on how we can stop the uh, shrinking of civic space here, which is an important component for human rights advocacy. And how does he justify his so-called war on drugs, which in reality is a, is a massive and systematic campaign of extrajudicial executions. He presents this as the right to security, to protect the citizens, 
from the drug addicts, the criminals, and so on and so forth. Erdogan has used the, the human rights discourse in order to justify clamming down on, uh, on uh, but his own understanding of the human rights discourse in order to clamp down on human rights activists, on academics, and so on and so forth, that by their irresponsible behavior, for example, academics is undermining the integrity of academic institutions and their right to education and so on and so forth. So you have a series of leaders that have been very good at using that. Now, here is where international institutions can help, but as you correctly point out, they are not very strong. And the problem, of course, with international institutions is that when it comes to major decisions, these are taken by member states. There is a certain autonomy of international institutions to be able to develop agendas in certain issue areas, but this autonomy is restricted by state action. And in the end, the main determinant is state action. Now, is there any hope of working through uh, um, uh, international institutions? I think certain inroads can be made both in the civil and political rights areas in the, and, and in the socioeconomic areas by developing or promoting ideas and projects that are developed in consultation with actors at the local level. But and this is very important, I think any international institutional effectiveness is premised on the idea of domestic buy-in. If there is no buy-in, we are not going to have any major effects on human rights observance. This is why the role of civil society organizations, uh, uh, human rights organizations, and the ability of a civic, uh, to have a civic space in which these activities can flourish is critical because in the end, and again, I will say that the risk of a bit of overgeneralization, no matter what initiatives are developed at the international level, no matter how many campaigns are undertaken at the international level, they must be rendered relevant in the local context. As some scholars that have studied the interaction between global and local processes have put it, this initiative must be vernacularized. If they are not vernacularized, there is very little hope. Well, I'm afraid that's, I think that's exactly right. Um, and it leads me into a question about a specific country that I wanted to ask you about. And that, of course, is China, um, you know, which is the biggest, I think, uh, you know, challenge or competitor mm -hmm. or whatever exactly it is uh, on the horizon for as far as the eye can see. And of course, you know, one of the reasons it hasn't been invited to the democracy summit uh, today is that, uh, you know, it's seen as, as perpetrating extensive civil uh, human rights violations in Xinjiang against the Uyghur population. But that's not the only uh, 
you know, misdemeanor, shall we say, uh, of which China is accused these days. So, you know, I wonder uh, how much impact can the human rights movement have insofar as it's, you know, uh, outside the country. And of course, uh, as you surely know, China has in the last few years, uh, you know, cracked down on on foreign NGOs and their, uh, you know, activities within China. Um, you know, I wonder, I, I, I must say, I often, I look at these, you know, protests, we're going to boycott the Winter Olympics. And mm-hmm. I just sort of really scratch my head and wonder whether one can have much effect on, you know, the decisions of Chinese, uh, you know, power holders in these, in these areas. What would you say about that? Yeah. Uh, uh, um, <clears throat> I'm afraid, jo- I'm afraid, John, that uh, you are exactly right on this. There is very limited now the diplomatic boycott of the uh, Olympics, uh, the Winter Olympics is, is purely symbolic and it is not going to have any effect. Uh, uh, speaking about the EU issue, recently, for ex- uh, um, uh, a few days ago, the EU tribunal. <clears throat> in London, which is an informal tribunal composed of lawyers, academics, and uh, business people, concluded after a series of hearings that there are such massive and systematic violations against uh, uh, the Uyghurs, massive and systematic crimes of humanity being committed against the Uyghurs in northwest China to amount to acts of genocide. Of course, what was the response of the Chinese regime? That all this is um, a, a fiction, that it is again another example of the West to use faulty evidence and uh, manipulate international processes in order to paint China as somebody, as a country that does not respect human rights. Uh, um, uh, uh, The answer to your question is that there is very limited impact that the outside world can have on improving the human rights situation in China at this juncture. If there is any hope, it must begin by uh, uh, the efforts of domestic organizations there to challenge the regime, which at the moment is very limited because the civil society space is severely restricted in China. But the, the change must come from within and then the West can assist it with tailored strategies to encourage and uh, promote the work of these initiatives. I want to say something else, however, about China and human rights that your question raised. Uh, uh, There are two major challenges that China pose at the international level uh, concerning human rights, uh, um, the idea of human rights. This is, uh, of course, at a separate level because so far we discussed the situation in the country. The first one is that China, contrary to the Soviet Union, is trying to promote a developmental model that has some appeal to a series of countries around the world, something that the Soviet Union never managed to uh, um, uh, do during the Cold War. The Soviet Union tried to promote itself as an alternative vision of human rights in the area of socioeconomic rights, but it never managed to deliver socioeconomic 
growth and prosperity and opportunities, socioeconomic opportunities to its citizens. So although there was a lot of propaganda in certain countries, at, you know, did follow the Soviet Union mantra on this, its appeal was limited. China is at a different level because on the developmental broad has produced results and can claim that it is an alternative model to the uh, 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 United States at all levels, including human rights, in the sense that it can deliver socioeconomic opportunities in a way that the previous competitor to the United States, Soviet Union, never managed to do. On the other hand, it's important to say that, and that in a sense, try to, uh, in a sense, poses a challenge to the notion of how uh, linked is democracy and human rights because China can say, listen, you can advance at least the rights that we consider important without thinking in terms, without advancing democracy. In fact, what they argue is that the failure, for example, of the West to solve certain serious socioeconomic justice issues shows how tied up the human rights prog- uh, program is to the liberal order which is in decline. That will be, let's say, the argument of China. The other thing I want to add is that China has been very successful in manipulating its presence in international institutions in order to marginalize Western democracies. This has happened in particular in the Human Rights Council, which is the main platform in the UN system when human rights issues are discussed and certain resolutions are passed. It's not a terribly effective uh, organ, but it's an important platform to wear. And the Trump administration decision to withdraw from the Human Rights Council gave an opening to China to use international mechanism processes to advance its own understanding of human rights. Now, the Biden administration, thankfully, at least on this front, realized that this poses a problem and uh, committed itself to re-enter the Human Rights Council, reapply, and now the U.S. is going to be a member of the Human Rights Council. But valuable time was lost and gave an opening to China to use international mechanism processes to undermine the understanding between, among other things, democracy and human rights. Right. Well, fascinating. Uh, I mean, I basically agree with, you know, what you're saying about China. And, and, you know, it's it's a different kettle of fish than China has been historically. I mean, it's got international activities that, you know, some of which are perceived positively and some of which are perhaps not so positive uh, in Africa and Latin America and elsewhere. Uh, But it's definitely different than most of what uh, happened during the Soviet Union. Uh, Well, this has been a a sobering and and I think judicious uh, discussion of the human rights uh, agenda, the human rights movement uh, today on International Human Rights Day and uh, as it happens on the day of the the first day anyway of the Summit for Democracy. I want to thank George Andriopoulos for sharing his insights about uh, the human rights agenda and where it may be going and where it's been. 
Um, remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Christo Voinov for his technical assistance, Meryl Sovner for helping get this uh, uh, this podcast together, and I want to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.